Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 91. A quick mention before we go into thanking our sponsors. Uh, I was recently interviewed for the Pacing and Racing podcast with Stephen Langenhausen. So uh, if you are a listener of that podcast, you may have heard it already. If not, uh, feel free to go and check it out. You can find it by searching Pacing and Racing in any of the usual podcast player apps. And uh, yep, that's just a general training talk with a lot of different uh, interesting discussions uh, that uh, I won't list here, but uh, a long training talk, so you might enjoy it. Now, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. I highly recommend that uh, if you are not already subscribed to Precision Hydration's newsletter that you go and do so because then you will be able to uh, follow their blog content which they put out. They put out a lot of it and it is actually really, really good quality. One recent article that I liked a lot and that is uh, highly relevant for what they're doing is called How to Get Your Nutrition Strategy Right for Endurance Performance. That is an article well worth a read as it gives a fantastic overview of where you can start your nutrition plan and then through practicing it in training you can dial it in for you specifically. And uh, the best thing of course would be to combine it with a free sweat test that you can do on precisionhydration.com to get an idea of your sodium needs especially if you're racing longer races like half and full distance triathlons. You can get 15% off any electrolytes should you choose to buy electrolytes on Precision Hydration with the promo code thattriathlonshow 15 And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers in wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And uh, by the time of recording this, I'm just uh, a couple of days out from having tested the Maverick X2 myself for the very first time. I did it in the open water. The pools are not open here yet. And that was an absolutely amazing experience. I already own the Maverick X, so I'm used to having Roka's flagship ship wetsuit model as my go-to race wetsuit. But uh, the Maverick X2 just takes everything that was great about the Maverick X and makes it even better. And I think in particular, what stood out to me was I could really, really feel how it stabilizes the core, which uh, was to me the greatest the greatest positive change from the Maverick X that it improved that to such a degree. I had not expected such a uh, such a notable difference. You can get that or any Roka products for 20% off with the promo code that you can get by going to the URL roka.com forward slash TTS. Now on to today's questions, which are from Damien in Melbourne, Australia. He writes, Hi Michael, thanks for doing what you do with the podcast. It's great content and provides really valuable insights into why we train the way we do. I'm generally time poor and would love to see if you could help with the following questions. One, if I had to choose between running and cycling, what would be the most bang for buck discipline that you would suggest I focus on in that fitness in one of these disciplines would generally translate to the other? Two, we're doing bike high intensity interval training sessions uh, up to an hour long translated to increased endurance over the Ironman distance. And three, a lot of articles talk about the benefits of uh, base building to build endurance and mitochondrial, mitochondrial density versus speed work to improve the efficiency. Is one better than the other to focus on? And uh, Damien, I know you also had a fourth question uh, 
frankly, the this episode would get so long if I went into that. So I'm saving that for another time. And uh, possibly I would like to uh, talk to uh, to James or Larky or David, the other scientific triathlon coaches, and maybe do a joint episode on, on that. That would be interesting. But uh, I'm saving that question for another time and uh, focusing on the three, uh, three that I already mentioned right now. So let's start with the first one. If I had to choose between running and cycling, what would be the most bang for buck discipline that you would suggest I focus on in that fitness uh, in that one of these would generally translate to the other? So uh, this is a very good question because we often talk about the crossover effects or the transfer effects between different disciplines in triathlon. But uh, frankly, we very rarely talk about what are these effects really? Can they be quantified? Have they been quantified? And coaches, including myself, uh, tend to talk about uh, these effects as if they are a, a fact, fact of life, fact of nature, because anecdotally it seems that there, there must be uh, such effects. Because how else can you explain that triathletes can run pretty fast, not quite as fast as a pure runner, but close to the same speed as a runner, considering they're doing maybe a third of the running volume that the runner does, or, or even less, uh, of course, for equivalent performances. So, uh, so that is something that we we need to ask ourselves. Like we we assume that these effects exist, but but do we actually know uh, what they are? In what dif- different disciplines they exist from one to another, and what the research actually says about it. In if we stick with the anecdotal evidence a bit, I do think that there are a few different schools of thoughts among coaches on these transfer effects. You have some coaches that generally believe in in these transfer effects, uh, but uh, not necessarily think that there are certain disciplines that transfer better or worse than others. Then you have coaches that believe strongly in the transfer between uh, cycling and running because they use similar muscle groups, which is a fair enough assumption. And uh, you also have a third school of thought, which is coaches who are strong proponents of transfer from swimming to running and possibly even even cycling. Uh, So... Anecdotally, because there are these different schools of thoughts on the phenomenon, it probably means that it's not that easy to say whether there is better bang for buck in terms of transfer between uh, disciplines in any of these particular cases, because then people would more or less agree, but there seems to be different schools of thoughts on that. Now let's have a look at uh, the research and see what, uh, what it says, and I will link to all the papers in the episode description. The most recent paper that I could find, which uh, is more of a summary, a general summary of uh, various topics, not just the transfer effects, but it's a great one that I've read before. It's Training and Competition Readiness in Triathlon by Echebaria, a former guest on the podcast, by the way, and Mujica and Pine in 2019. And I quote the paper, they write, when multiple training stimuli are aligned in terms of timing, recovery, and balance between intensity and volume, the additive effects can yield central and certain peripheral physiological adaptations. This occurs when adaptations from different exercise modes are transferred uh, are transferred a response referred to as cross-training. Despite limited evidence, a triathlete's running ability can improve from cycling-induced aerobic central adaptations and vice versa. Maximizing the return from each training session by amplifying the biochemical pathways during training and recovery is a goal in any sport. This is especially the case in triathlon, where athletes deal with multiple disciplines that necessitate high to very high training loads. 
more research is required to fully understand the conjoined simultaneous metabolic processes triggered by frequent training stimuli of varied duration, intensity, and exercise modes. So there you go. This paper cites roughly equal effects uh, between cycling and running in both directions. So there are transfer effects between those two, but uh, neither one of the directions would necessarily be stronger than the other. The study that they mainly cite for, uh, for this finding is called Modeling the Transfers of Training Effects on Performance in Elite Triathletes. It's by Millet and uh, co- colleagues in 2002. And this study investigated the effects of a 40-week training period where they had four elite triathletes. They measured all their swimming, cycling, and running training and quantified it using duration and heart rate. They used discipline-specific tests and also races as outcome measures. And then they used a training stimulus, so the duration and the heart rate data, as the input for the model and tried to find a mathematical model that best linked the output, the outcome measures to the input. So some caveats here. These are just four athletes. Also, these are elite athletes and they are from the draft legal Olympic uh, circuit. I would assume based on, I can't remember actually, but I would assume based on the work that Millet and his coworkers typically are doing. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's, those are some caveats. Uh, and again, mathematical modeling that a model can be a way of showing reality, but we need to take it for what it is. It is just a model, but it may be good to give a rough idea. So basically what they conclude is that the following cross transfer training effects were identified between cycling and running, but not with swimming performances. In addition, the training loads completed in running were shown to have a major effect on performances in triathlon competition, indicated that, indicating that running training is an essential part of triathlon performance. Swimming appears to be a highly specific activity which does not gain nor provide benefits from or to other activities uh, such as cycling and running. So that's uh, that one. And then finally, we have a very old study from 1994 by Tanaka, which is titled Effects of Cross-Training, Transfer of Training Effects on VO2 Max Between Cycling, Running and Swimming. And I have only been able to uh, access the abstract of this article. And uh, it isn't even clear exactly what type of article it is. It looks to me like a systematic review. Uh, But uh, what the abstract says relevant to this question is... Despite numerous anecdotal reports claiming benefits for cross-training, very few scientific studies have investigated this particular type of training. It appears that some transfer of training effects on maximum oxygen uptake, or VO2 max, exists from one mode to another. The non-specific training effects seem to be more noticeable when running is performed as a cross-training mode. Swim training, however, may result in minimum transfer of training effects on VO2 max. Cross-training effects never exceed those induced by the sport-specific training mode. The principles of specificity of training tend to have greater significance, especially for highly trained athletes. For the general population, cross-training may be highly beneficial in terms of overall fitness. So to summarize, there seems to be transfer effects in both directions between running and cycling, although this uh, study by Tanaka seems to say that there is a slight uh, favoring of running has greater effects on other modalities. So running would be a very beneficial one to 
to practice. And also Millet's study said that in terms of uh, competition performance, running seems to be a very important discipline to practice. But uh, for you to practically answer your question, uh, I wouldn't necessarily simply say that, well, if you have to choose between one or the other, it's running. I would say which discipline is your weaker one and focus on the one that is a relative weakness for you. If it's cycling, that's the one that you uh, should choose on when, when you have to choose between the two. So uh, we have to also consider in terms of the potential finding that maybe running could be potentially slightly more uh, slightly more beneficial in terms of transferring effects to other disciplines. What I also would say as a caveat to that is that uh, if you're injured, then you will get zero training effects, uh, direct and uh, transferred. So be careful with uh, ramping up running too much just because of that. That might be one reason that anecdotally it seems that a lot of athletes are running really well when they increase cycling training maybe just because they find a way to get all the central adaptations they need but without risking injuries that may have hampered their progress before so that's a very important aspect i think to to keep in consideration and uh, my practical answer again if you if we assume that you are fairly even in your performances in running and cycling would be that perhaps you could do your more frequent training in running but aim to get in a bit more volume and longer rides on the bike so i would definitely say that you might get a bit more bang for buck by doing a 30 minute run compared to a 30 minute bike but on the weekend for example when you have more time perhaps if you have two to three hours to train on saturday and sunday then i think that it might be beneficial for you to just focus on using all that available time and maybe that means that because you probably shouldn't go out and run for three hours right now but you can go out and and ride for three hours so you could do that actually on both weekend days or do simply do two longish rides on the weekend and maximize your volume on those days and maybe if you're time uh, crunched on the weekdays then those days you do shorter workouts and they might be runs perhaps all of them or one one of the weekdays would be a ride but uh, yeah that would be my practical advice to answer that question the next question that uh, Damien asks is, would doing bike high-intensity interval training sessions uh, up to only an hour translate to increase, increased endurance or the Ironman distance? So yes and no. If you do a high-intensity interval training or HIIT training program and uh, you generally improve your fitness by improving your aerobic capacity, your VO2 max, then that's basically a rising tide that lifts all boats in a way at least so let's say you go from a vo2 max of 45 to 50 then all else being equal your capacity or the ironman distance will improve yes uh, so as long as the training that you do it keeps giving you improvements then uh, and you could assess that by just doing regular field tests like doing a 20 minute time trial or a 30 minute time trial or something like that then this general improvement in fitness, which uh, mo probably mostly will come from VO2 max improvements, will translate to improved performance or the Ironman distance uh, to some extent. But um, this is the big but. The Ironman is a 180 kilometer long bike leg. And after that, you still have to run a marathon. Uh, so if you rarely ride for longer than one hour, then I can almost guarantee you that while the first two hours or three hours may be nice and good on the bike the second half of the bike will be much much less enjoyable 
and let's not even talk about the marathon because that that would be pretty ugly i would be pretty confident in saying specificity is very important and for the ironman the specificity is really the duration of the event and it's something that if you're going to do ironman you you cannot underestimate so a time crunched hit program can certainly give you some of the most important adaptations in endurance sports like more mitochondria which would translate into a bigger vo2 max as we talked about but it will also fall short and way short in some other aspects that are critical for your ironman performance like for example the fatigue resistance of your uh, muscle fibers and on the run even your resistance to central fatigue it would also fall short in that you would never get that signaling for adaptations that gradually depleting and going getting low on muscle glycogen towards the end of a long ride or run will generate because you never will get low because you're only riding for one hour and you will also miss the fuel utilization because when you do a hit program uh, you're always uh, going to be burning primarily carbohydrates because of the high intensity so you're never really practicing the the fat burning the fat oxidation so even though yes an increased vo2 max will uh, generally result in a in an increased uh, ability to burn fat as well you will still be for your vo2 max on the very low end of where your fat oxidation could be if you're never going to ride long and at a submaximal intensity where you are actually practicing using fat for fuel and uh, from personal experience i would say that uh, i came into triathlon and cycling from uh, running so i was pretty fit when i started cycling uh, at least if you discount my being injured of course so I had no problem at all hanging with the local bike group for the first hour or two of a ride. But then you get to hour three, and even though I was training for marathons, so definitely a long running and even a couple of ultras, then and I was no stranger to mileage and training every day, like high mileage for a runner, at least for an amateur runner, the wheels just start to come off in that third hour when you're riding with that group and you, you're not a trained cyclist and you're not used to going for long on the bike. So it wasn't a limitation in VO2 max because I was able to easily hang with them in the first couple of hours, but probably a combination of muscle fatigue and fuel utilization and availability and so on. Uh, so so that's, that's just an example of how uh, even though you can be generally fit as measured by a standard VO2 max test, then uh, that's not all that it takes to be fit or a longer duration. And let's not forget that this happened. My example here was from hours that were between two and three hours long, maybe a bit more than three hours in some cases, but generally uh, topped out around three hours and I was pretty fit. But the Ironman is twice as long in terms of duration or around about twice as long. So uh, so that's just a whole other ball game. And also uh, one more thing that just anecdotally that I want to say is that you, you will notice this the first time you do a three-hour ride if you've only ever gone, let's say, two hours before, that will be a massive difference. Even if you maybe slightly reduce the intensity, you will notice that that last hour. The same thing happens when you the first time you go from three hours to four hours, the first time you go from four hours to five hours, and from five hours to six hours. Each hour that you go longer, you'll just feel very different. It's a, it's a very different different feeling. So uh, so you really need to train that. There's There's no getting around that. And uh, I would recommend that you listen to Q&A number 51, which is called What are the benefits of long rides? 
and can you get the same effects by pre-fatiguing the muscles with intensity? And the answer to that question is uh, some of the effects you can get by pre-fatiguing the muscles, but not all of them. For some of the effects, you really have to go long. And just as important as the physiological aspects that I mentioned before, the ability to resist fatigue, both centrally and peripherally, the fuel utilization and uh, the signaling from getting low on glycogen after long rides. There are also some more practical aspects that uh, you really, really need to not underestimate as well to give yourself a, uh, a decent chance of doing, doing an Ironman without wanting to throw yourself off a cliff during or after. So here I'm talking about things like you need to practice being comfortable on the bike for hours and hours whether it's in the aero position on a TT bike or sitting up on a road bike, you still need to put in the hours to make sure that you can you can handle that comfortably. You also need to train your gut to tolerate taking on uh, reasonably large amounts of hydration and nutrition. And you need to practice pacing, obviously. Uh, because if you're doing a very hit-heavy training program, then the likelihood that if you're going out for a long ride is that you're going to be going at a fairly brisk pace at first the first hour and then just gradually slow down and eventually get down to a slog and you really don't want that to happen in your race you want to practice that pacing and know what you can do for different durations and what what is a sustainable intensity for whatever duration you're going to ride at and uh, in terms of practical applications for a time-strapped athlete does that mean that you have to do a four-hour ride or five-hour ride or six-hour ride every week? No, absolutely not. But in the last three months or so before uh, an Ironman, I think you should do quite a few of these long rides. And as a rough guideline, I would say at least one every other week. And you should do at least a couple of rides among these long rides that are very close to if not over the race distance or expected race duration so going for 170 to 180k or going for six hours if that's for how long you expect to be out on the race course for the time crunch athlete obviously there is a need to make compromises but but i just think for the ironman that uh, if you invest in doing an ironman you're paying a lot for the race entry you're probably traveling somewhere you you want want to have a decent experience you you don't want to have the feeling of wanting to throw yourself off the cliff so you can't get away with never riding long or running long but uh, the compromise comes in that instead of the way that like somebody wanting to qualify for kona or podium in kona which they might need to do two long rides per week fairly long rides it might be three hours and four hours or something like that uh, that that's not something obviously that the time strapped athlete uh, would be doing and less competitive athlete would need to be doing by no means but the compromise comes in the form of uh, in that race specific period the last three months or so you would still be doing one long ride maybe every two weeks or so that is still a compromise but that's a, that's as low as you can go of course there will be exceptions to that rule but i would be i would not recommend doing any less long rides than than that even if you're time crunched if if you can't commit to any more than that then i would say that it, i would wouldn't recommend doing an ironman because i don't think you will just have the experience that you should have in in a race like that and then the final question, a lot of articles talk about the benefits of base building to build endurance and mitochondrial density versus using speed work to improve efficiency. Is one better than the other to focus on? 
Well, the short answer is that uh, it doesn't really matter if one is better than the other or not, because it is very well established that you get the best result by using a combination of low-intensity training and high-intensity training. The long answer, uh, well, first of all, <laughs> I would say that the long answer is I would recommend listening to the interview I did with Professor David Bishop in episode 215. Uh, there we really go into the uh, the long answer. But I will also uh, quote some points and or take some points from uh, a crosstalk editorial that he wrote uh, to the Journal of Physiology, a summary of studies that investigated uh, the effects specifically on mitochondrial content or how much mitochondria you have uh, in your in your muscles on uh, on volume of training versus uh, higher intensity of training and a direct quote from that uh, that crosstalk is although the evidence indicates that training volume is more important than training intensity to increase mitochondrial content this does not imply that training intensity is unimportant so that's basically that, that's the that's the the answer. Training volume is probably more important, and by training volume here, it doesn't mean that all of it has to be low or all of it's high. It just means that if you can increase training volume, you will be better, generally speaking. But uh, you should not go from doing six hours of training per week and doing some intensity, doing eight hours per week and doing no intensity, and expecting to get faster. I would say maintain intensity, like because the combination, as I say, is the well established to be the best the best way. And then the the question is simply what is the right balance? And that's something that we've discussed discussed many times in various episodes episodes on this podcast. So without going into any great details, I just want to bring up some other main points from uh, Professor Bishop's uh, summary of the of the research there. And we also discussed some of this in my interview with him. So as, as I said, or as I quoted, uh, volume seems to be more important for mitochondrial content or mitochondrial density in the terms that you used in your question. Intensity, however, does seem to be more important for mitochondrial function. But the, the kicker here is that mitochondrial content is just of much greater importance than mitochondrial function. And uh, for any exercise science nerds, I can highly recommend listening to uh, Professor Bishop's recent appearance on the Science of Ultra podcast. And uh, you'll find it, it's uh, from early June, I believe, or late May, perhaps. And they discussed how the mitochondria never seem to operate at anywhere near full capacity anyway. And that could be a main reason for why content is so much more important than function. But it's, again, like I quoted, it's not to say that training intensity is unimportant. It is important. And that's why you want to have both and don't want to put them against one another. Uh, going back to the editorial and the summary of the studies that uh, uh, Professor Bishop and his co-authors did, they did note that for a fixed number of training hours, a higher intensity average intensity does seem to lead to higher mitochondrial content uh, this of course is probably up to a certain point and uh, you would have to go and look at all the individual studies analyzed to find out just what amount of training they were doing and what amount of intensity they were doing uh, if you're doing 30 hours of training and you're doing uh, five hours of uh, high intensity then increasing to 10 hours of high intensity is very unlikely to <laughs> give you better adaptations the likelihood is that you're going to be totally totally uh, smoked uh, within a week but uh, that's an extreme scenario that i don't think that these studies <laughs> took into account 
But for a time-strapped athlete, I think this is something worth considering. If you are training six hours per week, then increasing the amount of intensity that you're doing from one hour to two hours might be beneficial uh, and uh, lead to a higher amount of mitochondrial content. So it is a very, very large topic, of course, and uh, I really can't go into a lot of detail on it. But just to, to wrap this up, increasing training volume is one of the most surefire ways you have to improve your endurance capacity. But when you have a fixed number of hours to train, then yes, relative intensity of training should be higher, especially if you're on a low number of, of hours to train. Uh, so so that's, that's basically the gist of it. But again, remember the caveat, this is up to a certain point. And where that point is, we, we don't quite know, but uh, it may come actually sooner than, than a lot of people think. Also, one final point, you should definitely not neglect doing the low-intensity training, as that low-intensity training in itself is a very important part of the stimulus for adaptation. As I discussed together with Coach Lockie from Scientific Triathlon in a recent Q&A we did, which was Q&A number 88. So listen to that one for more information. And that is it for today. Thank you for your question, Damien. And uh, keep sending in questions, everybody. I have lots of great questions in the queue. So thank you to everybody who has been sending them in. Uh, send them to michael.scientifictriathlon.com. And that's Michael with a K. And uh, if you are looking for coaching, customized training plans, or ready-made training plans, check out scientifictriathlon.com. We have uh, all of those services and products available there. So something for everybody and everybody's needs. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and get 15% off your electrolytes with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka for sponsoring the podcast. You can find their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses on roca.com. And go to roca.com forward slash TTS to get a 20% discount code. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.